Hi, and welcome to episode eight of Sacred Science, Gleaning Wisdom from Science and Religion. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rabbi Jeff Middleman, the founding director of Sinai and Synapses. How do we make decisions when data changes? How can we help parents feel more comfortable with the decisions they make? Why was it so hard to collect accurate data about schools and COVID for the first several years of the pandemic? Professor Emily Oster of Brown University became a trusted source of information on all those topics in the last few years. As the author of Expecting Better, The Family Firm, and Crib Sheet, and as one of the administrators of the COVID School Response Dashboard. We've recorded this conversation on February 9th, 2021, as we explored more questions surrounding COVID and risks and rewards. So I'd love for you, because I think a lot of people right now know you through your work on the COVID school dashboard and some of the work that people are trying to grapple with and struggle with about opening schools and how and when and where. And there's some really bad information. There's some really well-meaning but incorrect information. Uh, There's a lot of politicized information. What are some of the things that that you're seeing and you think would be really important and and valuable information to be able to know as we're exploring some of these questions here? Yeah. So I think, you know, there's a sort of a few things I would say, and I kind of think it's useful here to step back a little bit and think about partly why this is so hard and why our, our priors, like why it's, it's so difficult to think about these, these questions. And I think one really, um, one really like just to like set the stage in general when we have a respiratory virus like the flu or RSV or some other thing, it kids get it more. That's like the flu is like the classic example. Like if you looked at an age pattern of the flu, you would see that like kids get it a lot and and you know old people get it a lot. That's kind of it's kind of like a like a dippy pattern. And so if you were taught if we were if this was a regular like standard just like a really terrible flu pandemic then we would really want to close schools. That would be like almost the first thing we'd want to do. And it would be really important. And in fact, if we want to interrupt just regular flu season, really bad flu season, you know, we don't typically do this, but some countries do close their schools. And that seems to be a very effective, a very effective strategy. So I think, you know, we were thinking about this back in March, there was so much like that, that was sort of where people's heads went immediately was like, okay, like kids are going to be a big source of this. That turns out not to be true. In COVID, it just kids don't get very serious illness. We don't really understand that well why. They seem to be less likely to spread it. Um, certainly part of that is that they don't get it, but they're just like this is not a high-risk group and they don't seem to be, you know, driving, driving the pandemic. But I think it's been really hard to kind of shift our thinking on that. And that has that has meant a lot of people are coming into this whole conversation with a prior that is not right. And so, you know, they're kind of coming in with a set of expectations that are just think that are that are just wrong. And so th- I think that was like the first barrier to thinking about schools. And then the and then you know we had last year we kind of realized okay this remote learning thing is not super successful. Like let's you know I think we got into the summer and there were a lot of people, a lot of jurisdictions, a lot of states that were like okay, let's get going. Let's try to figure out how we can open schools in the fall because this is like not this remote learning thing, not awesome. Let's do it. And then what happened and this is like, for me, probably the most frustrating thing in this whole saga is that Trump came out and said in the summer, like, you should open all the schools. And he didn't say, it wasn't a very well, it wasn't a nuanced comment. You know, he didn't say like what you might've said, which is like, 
this is really important for social, you know, this is really important. Let's figure out, let's like put all these resources and try to figure out how we can do this safely. He was just like, everyone should open their schools because that has to happen. And then he sort of moved on. But that narrative meant that the kind of school reopening decisions ended up pivoting totally on whether like, or very, very heavily on whether the governor or district or whatever was aligned with, with Trump or was aligned with the left. And, and so when you look at like the map of school reopenings across the country, you know, basically Florida opened like 100% everybody in person all the time, even though they've had a terrible pandemic. And, uh, and you know, Texas opened everything, Georgia opened everything, you know, like a, places like that opened a lot, whereas a lot of places where the risks were much lower, or actually the number of COVID cases were much lower in September didn't open at all. And so we sort of ended up in this situation where there was sort of a that we were like exactly not following the science. And then on top of that, and on top of that, there was then kind of no effort to get any information. So you'd say, okay, well, at least if Florida is going to open all their schools in a situation that seems terrible, at least they can collect some information so we can learn about like, hey, can we open schools in California? There was almost no effort, no systematic effort to do that either. And so we were sort of left in a situation where some kids are in school, some kids are not in school. We don't have any idea what's a safe way to do this. Like we haven't really learned anything. And I think that's kind of brought us to the present moment. And, you know, what's what's interesting and what's so challenging, you're bringing this up of the politicization of this, that a phrase that a lot of people on the left use is follow the science, follow the science. But it's not just the science, right? You need the data, but there are other stakeholders. There's there's politicians, there's values, there's trade-offs, there are different elements of this. So the data is critical. And I think not having the data is 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 really problematic, which is I think why why you're collecting so much of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's it's, you know, and so we're collecting some, we can talk more about that, but I think that there are a, you know a million different things where we really just need to know, like even things like masking, where you know, we have a very good sense that masks are important and people who wear masks would know from first principles that that would that, that would matter. But when it comes to something like schools, there are open questions about about what, like who needs to mask and, you know, to what extent. So, you know, do you need the four-year-olds to mask or not? I think that that is unclear and it would be, and we have nothing in place to kind of get actual information on that. And so it sort of left everybody to create their own, their own guidelines. And the idea that superintendents of school districts are not only supposed to like, in some cases, be the bus driver and the gym teacher and the superintendent, but also some kind of like secret COVID expert who knows all the things that they should do. I mean, it's crazy. Like that's not that person's job. And I think we really fell down on that. And and I think part of the challenge too, and, and certainly thinking about in in the Jewish world, you know, of, of religious schools and day schools and things like that, but there's a there's often a very Jewish element. There's a great Yiddish expression, or there's a joke where it was in in uh, in in Eastern Europe in the 1800s, where they said uh, they sent a telegram of "start worrying, details to follow," and that's I think that's also a very natural, not just Jewish human element of I need to be able to be worried about things. And COVID, it's it's hard to know what's actually really worrying, and sometimes sometimes making making a a decision of I'm going to be a little bit more lax could have a very significant downside. So, so how do we even 
make that distinction of what's a what's a appropriate risk reward calculation. What should I be worried about versus not worried about? Yeah, I mean, I think this. So, so I I would all I like I like the like worry now details of all this. Um, but I mean, I think that, that one of the things that has happened in this context is that the risks associated with COVID are so salient, they're so much in your face all the time that it has become difficult for people to put them inside of a, a framework that would help them think about like, are like, is there a scope for taking this risk? I mean, you sort of step back, like we take risks all the time. You know, when you leave your house, like, and get in your car, that contains a risk when you do, you know, and, and some of those are physical, they're disease risks, there's all kinds of, we just take risks. This is like part of being a person is that you experience some risks and part of being a parent is you experience some risks. And when I, talk about this in my other parenting work. Sometimes they say, you know, the like, you know, people say like having a kid is like having your heart walk around outside your body, which is, which is right. Right. And you sort of like, when someone tells you something that could be risky for your kid, it's so hard to get it out of your head as like the thing that kind of like occupies you. In the case of COVID, I think part of what's happened is, is that kind of instinct, particularly around kids, um, has, has kind of like, T- taken over and it's hard for people to conceptualize how low the risks are. So like I was, and so I was thinking about writing about this today and, you know, there are some surveys where parents are asked like, sort of, what do you think is the thing? Like, what is the chance that your child, if your child gets COVID, like what's the chance they would be hospitalized? And, you know, people's report of that is, is like 17%. Like it's some number that's like quite high. And the actual sort of like population risk of hospitalization for, for kids from COVID is something like, I don't know, 150,000. So, I mean, it's just like, and, you know, and, and you sort of, there's anything about like, how can we help people understand that? I guess for me, one thing is sort of putting it in the context of other things. So, you know, the, the risk of a child under one being hospitalization, hospitalized for, for RSV, like a common childhood thing, that risk is about 200 times bigger in the last year than COVID, than that mm-hmm. case. So, you know, it's like, and and you, so, and in some ways I like to see that not so people will be like, oh my God, I wasn't worried about RSV. And now I, I well, you're telling me another thing I have to worry about. But just to say like, you're living your life, you're taking, you're inherently like taking some risks, which you should, because that's part of like being a person. Um, but this risk is not always so different than these other ones. And what's, what's, interesting and what's what's challenging is um and i think a lot of synagogues and and churches and and religious institutions are very understandably and i think generally very appropriately talking about uh the hebrew phrase is pekoach nefesh of saving a life and and there's a there's an element of um we are not going to meet in person and sing to be able to save a life. And you know what? That's a trade-off that I think is worth it. It's worth it because you can totally get together and you don't actually have to physically be in person to be able to save a life. But, but does that end up becoming, um, you know, what, what ends up being the loss there? And I think some of that is at least acknowledging what the loss is that, right. Being able to say, I'm, I'm shutting this down. I'm doing this to be able to save a life. And I don't know if I'm actually going to save a life or not, but I I'm recognizing that this is the trade-off that we're making. And I am willing to make this trade-off for right now. Yeah. And I think it, you know, that sort of, that gets to like thinking about what's the, you know, what are the risks on the other side? And I think for some, there are some things, you know, like, where you could say like that it's worth, you know, it is not worth it to do it, even if the risk was very small, because, you know, we can 
sing together on on Zoom or because, you know, either because the risk is high or because we found a good way to sort of be together otherwise. And I think one of the things that's pushed the school conversation a little bit in the fall is the realization that actually like remote schooling is not like remote singing or maybe, you know, but like it's, it's not really working. Not for all kids. Some kids like it. But for a lot of kids, it's really not working. And that, you know, that's, it's not a great substitute. Um, and I think that's just worth acknowledging. We got to figure it out. And, and that there's also, there's a difference of a six-year-old and a 78-year-old and what the risk is. And that's, and that's ensuring like, wait a second, getting everybody together with people who are high risk in a close quarters, like, nope, that's actually a pretty big risk there. That's a versus being in a classroom with young kids masked in, in a place that have, hopefully has good airflow and things along those yeah, lines. Yeah. And I think it's, again, it's just sort of like a, like an issue where we need to like, we, you know, as you said, like sort of follow the science. And I think we have a lot of, um, you know, we have a lot of um, data now about schools in particular, that kind of, this is a, low, this is a really low risk environment. I mean, the most, the most striking thing was this, this study, this contact tracing study they did in North Carolina, where they've got 90,000 kids in school for 10 weeks. You know, there's like eight, they basically saw about 800 cases that came from outside, you know, like people who were acquired, people in the school population who acquired COVID somewhere else. And they had 32 people who had gotten it from someone at school. And none of those transmissions were child to adult. Huh. So it's almost all either kid to kid or more commonly staff to staff or staff to kid, like sort of staff, like you go to the lunchroom, you take your mask down. That's actually high risk activity. Um, as a, so I think that that you know that kind of stuff is just that's the kind of information we need people to to see and sort of think about when they take these trade offs. And and I think that's the other piece too that I that's that often comes up with, of, of I think not recognizing it or not framing it in in a risk or a trade off piece of masks becoming also a partisan piece where at least in my mind. It is a very low risk, very low cost piece to be able to put on a, a, a put on a mask with a, a, a tremendous risk or a much higher risk if you're walking around unmasked. So it, it, I can understand trying to decide of what am I going to do with my school? What am I going to do with my synagogue? What am I going to do with my church versus am I going to wear a mask or not? They're, they're, they're different questions there. Yeah, I mean, this piece of it I'm finding, I think you know, this is again, sort of, it got politicized in a way that I think is really crazy. I mean, it's a piece of cloth you put on your face. Like, I just don't, I, I it, it seems, you know, and, and I think with the school thing, a lot of people, you know, early on are like, oh, you know, kids, you know, kids can't wear, can't wear a mask. Actually, no, kids are fine. They're a lot better than adults. They barely pull it down under, you know, because they're not. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's proved to be I think, you know, there's a piece of this that I think is frustrating that we both failed kids a little bit and failed and also failed to give them enough credit, right? That we're sort of going, oh, well, we can't have you in school because you can't keep your, your mask on. You know, actually, no, they're fine at keeping their mask on. Like, you know, if you explain to kids, listen, you have to wear this, that's what it's going to take to be in school with other, you know, with other people, like they'll, they'll do it because, well, they don't want to wear pants either, but they do that. <laughs> right, that's, and, and I think the other thing too, that's often overlooked and, and I know this is some of the work that you're doing too, is that a lot of these questions are not binary, right? There, there's right. Yeah. And, and you can test something. And if it, and if there's a little bit of a transmission in one place, you can dial it back and you're right. You're not like, I am going to open up entirely everything right now, but saying, we're going to try this for a couple of weeks and, and, and experiment here in this way. 
yeah, of course, that's where the science matters, right? I mean, that's where like all of these things, like, you know, the like the better is our monitoring and data collection, the better we are going to be able to ask both, you know, identify when something has gone wrong and figure out how to fix it and to just sort of, and to be able to titrate a little bit, you know, okay, we tried indoor dining a little bit. We tried, you know, these kind of schools, this guy, we tried to, and sort of seeing what, seeing what happens. So there was a, there was a question that came up and, and you alluded to it a little bit. Um, and I know you're also not an epidemiologist, but, but, um, but the question of, are you seeing that are, do children tend to spread the disease to others? And, and from what I understand, it's not so much, but, but, I, but I've also seen conflicting pieces on this. Yeah. So this is probably the most conflicting part of this. I mean, everyone sort of agrees that like kids don't get COVID at a very high rate. And I think there's also now the science is pretty clear about transmission in schools. I think a more complicated question is like in the household, to what extent are kids the index case or not the index case? And I think that, you know, the biggest contact tracing study we have like this is in India. And they basically see, like, actually kids do see, little kids seem to transmit some to other little kids, but very rarely to adults. Um, and, you know, you don't, so we, we, we don't see a lot of cases where kids are, where we're sort of confident, like that kids are the index case for a family. It's much more commonly the other directions, different than saying that they, it's not that they, they can't do that. Um, it just, it doesn't, does not seem common in the day. I'd love to to pivot a little bit and talk a little bit more broadly about some of the work that you've done on pregnancy and parenting and and particularly the link of all of this with economics because we don't normally I mean, we think about how much how much it costs to be able to raise kids um, but from 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 what I've seen of your work that you know economics is really about how do we allocate resources of time and energy in this kind of way and that's really really helpful and risk and reward and and that can actually help us be a little bit, as you say, a little bit more calm and a little bit more rational on these different kinds of, of questions that often become total lightning rods. So what are some of the ways in which you've seen the importance of just sort of general economic thinking in dealing with questions of pregnancy and parenting here? Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, I um, I was perhaps as good background raised by two economists, and my husband is also an economist. So this sort of idea that that would be like a central thing in your in your like family decision making is very, um, comes very, very naturally. And I think, you know, this is a sort of science of, of, uh, of decision making and of trying to um, kind of think about how we can trade off costs and and benefits and how we can, you know, as I tell my students, like, how do you allocate scarce resources to satisfy competing ends? Yes, that is relevant in the market, but it's also relevant in a, you know, a family setting where your time is scarce and maybe there are competing ends and you have to sort of, you know, figure out kind of how we're going to, um, how we're going to fit that, um, how we're going to fit that together. Um, and so, you know, I, um, in my, in my books, I really sort of lean into this idea that kind of good decision making, that thinking about the choices, trading off costs and benefits, thinking about the data that that's really central to you know, to your, your, to your life. Um, and, uh, and that, that being deliberate, and uh, this particularly in the new book talks a lot about this, or sort of the idea that like being deliberate in the choices that you make in your personal life is actually like really important and is sort of a, a way into how, into being happy with the life that you, that you build and that you sort of like, we, we too often, I think in our, 
do something in our personal life that we wouldn't do in our work life, which is just let small decisions kind of pile up until we wake up and realize, like, well, this isn't how I envision doing, you know, this isn't how I envision doing this. Like I thought I would be going, you know, I thought we'd be going to you know show every Sunday and we're not or every Saturday and we're not because like there's too many soccer games. Right. You know, like it, I agreed to one soccer game or one birthday party and then it's every birthday party. And like I this is not the life I wanted. You know, I and so some of it is about kind of t- teaching people, look, you need to come at these decisions and this and this process in the same way you would in a more professional way and and really try to like structure your decision making and, and that that's key to uh, one key to trying to be happy. Well, and that's and and I I think this was not his original word, but Rabbi David Saperstein, who directed the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism, said the great moral document of America is not the Constitution and it's not the do- the Declaration of Independence. It's the budget as passed by the United States Congress and and for synagogues and churches and and our own personal elements of of if we do an audit of our time and our money, does that match with what we say we want our values to be able to do? Because you can only have only X amount of money, X amount of time. How did you use it? And did that match with what you really wanted to have happen in your life? Yeah. And I think we so rarely sort of sit down and think like, okay, but actually what are the things I want to have happen? You know, what do like, and what do I want? Like, what do I want my days to look like? What are the things that, you know, when I look back on this in in five years, like, what am I going to want to have said I did. And if, you know, if, if that isn't the thing you're doing every day, then, you know, you need to kind of like step back and think about what are the things you want to do every day. And, you know, in the research that you've done or, or interviews with different uh, parents, what are some of the things that have surprised you the most that, you know, you went in that you may have gone in with a particular prior and said, Oh, wait, actually, I've got to revise that. That may not have been correct here. I think I am often surprised by how people who, how, when I used to teach at business school, I used to use the phrase situational fluency to describe an ability to move, like to move kind of skills between situations. And so I talk like because of the kind of stuff I do, talk to a lot of parents who are like very successful at their, like who are like working at very high levels, like they're like at their, their boss, they're, 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 but then you sort of talk to them about their, their, per, their household. And it's like, there's none of that is happening in at home, you know, they're not bringing those, those, they're not bringing the situation, situational fluency into, into this. And I think that, um, you know, that, um, that sometimes, um, sometimes surprises, surprises me. And I think it was, I think it was, it might've been Alison Gopnik who wrote the, the gardener and the carpenter, um, who wrote a book and, and she's, um, that sometimes we think about parenting of like, I'm the carpenter. And if I follow these instructions, I will build this house as opposed to being a parent and letting the flower go, like being able to nurture it. And, and some of the reason that kids are able to, and, and hopefully parents, but kids in particular can be so flexible and things of wearing a mask or not wearing a mask is because they have to be adaptable. They have to be changing what what's going to happen um in in many ways because of our evolutionary history because we didn't know what the climate was going to be and so going into saying this is like i'm going in this is the kind of child i'm going to do and if i follow these instructions this is what's going to happen that's going to backfire as a parent and it's going to backfire as a child yeah i mean i think this you know for me this was kind of a big um learning piece of the of the pandemic was you know in the, in the spring i got obviously i got to spend all the time with the kids um, and, you know, I think I've sort of like, oh, I've always like in the fitting of an academic, I'm like pretty into academics. 
Um, and I, you know, I sort of think of that as like the thing I'm trying to achieve. And so one of my big frustrations has always been like the school doesn't like do enough academics. It doesn't do enough school. Like where's the, where's the cram school? Like where's the math drills, you know? And then kind of in the spring, I got a chance to like, to be that, you know, I was like, okay, we're going to homeschool. I'm going to do all this math stuff. And I learned that like, actually, yeah, like I, I, I taught my kid to read, like he reads, he reads great. But actually it was awful because it turns out that like, you know, really what the kids like, they need school, but also they, they are like, that is not for both, for one of my kids more than the other, but like, that is like not the particular way in which that kid most excelled. And, you know, we sort of like, kind of, it was, a, it was a moment for me to recognize, like, actually there are some things that like I can learn from my, there are some things my kids are really good at. Um, and I should be like, sort of. I, I should be celebrating those more as opposed to being sort of like the car, you know, like, okay, we're going to build this. And then next thing is going to learn algebra and, and kind of, I don't know, part of, part of like one's process. And, and that's, that's, I think that's a, that's a hard thing for, I think a lot of, probably a lot of parents, and a lot of educators, which is what is the, I think the amount of content that kids can learn in a given time, they can actually learn quite a bit of content in a very short amount of time, but that's not what its goal is. A lot of it's the relationship that's, that's being built. And so much, I think of early elementary education, from what I understand that the content is important, but it's even more of how do I navigate the, the playground? How do I deal with friends and, and look, there's, I've got a, five-year-old and a seven-year-old of questions of fairness, which is a huge economic piece in this way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think, you know, when we look back on this and sort of come back to the school stuff, like, I think when we look back on this, uh, on this period um, and kind of what are the, the costs to kids, you know, people talk a lot about learning losses and I think that you know, those are real. On the other hand, you know, if you didn't learn to read this year, like when you go back to school next year, like you can repeat first grade and you will, you will learn to read. So I don't want to minimize that, but those feel like pieces that we can probably, we, we have a sense of how to try to ameliorate some of those problems. I think a bigger, these sort of learning loss kind of issues, um, sort of socio-emotional, like those, those things, I think we're going to, we're going to be feeling those losses for longer and we don't understand them as well. I think that's a, that's a, that's a fair point. And realizing as I'm, as I'm speaking and as you're, as you're, speaking as well of recognizing now of coming at this from, from a much more of a point of privilege of people who are, um, who are out of school, um, who are people of color or low, lower socioeconomic piece, right. There, there probably is a, a very significant amount of content loss that happens yeah, as well. Is, you know, I think, and that, but, you know, again, I think that piece is, that piece is really like, that piece is really bad. Um, and, but it's also really, and I think it's know, really what uh, it's really measurable. Mm. Um, and so I think we will, you know, and this is part of what I'm hoping, of course we failed at everything else. So why we would fix it this, I'm not sure, but like, I think, you know, there, this is a place where I have to put resources, right? You say basically there's a bunch of kids who basically, you know, learned, I don't know, half as much as they should have, you know, particularly for kids, uh, in these, these sort of younger grades where like, if you want to move on to do other, like you, you need to be able to know how to read because right. a lot that's going to build on a lot. And if you exit first grade, you don't know how to read then you don't know how to read. And it's going to be really hard to like learn the stuff you need to learn just sort of when you move from like learning to read to reading to learn. And so I think we're going to need to, we need to think about how to, how to manage that particularly um, in communities where, you know, that, that piece of the loss is so, is, has been so much. And, and I think probably also of, of how much of school is 
being able to let the parents work also. That's, I mean, that's, that's, I think, a, a, a real challenge, particularly for people in a lower socioeconomic group or people who are, um, you know, need to, you know, need to actually be on the ground. Yeah. As, as, as essential workers, there's no, there's no place for them to put them, you know, for kids, like they, they can't be going with them to be, you know, there. I mean, some of the weirdest, yeah, weirdest is, uh, some of the most bizarre aspects of this, of the schooling stuff is that there are places where basically kids are physically at schools being supervised by non-union, non-union employees, uh, while they are being, while they're being taught on zoom by teachers. And, you know, that like, you know, that it's sort of like, I can kind of see, I can see where, how we got to that. We had some empty school buildings, like some kids need to be at childcare because like their parents are working. So there are reasons we got to that, but it's a bit of an odd situation to say it's sort of not safe to be in this building, except for poor kids who need to be in this, in this building because there's no place else for them to go for them. Somehow it's safe. And I think the truth is it is safe, but it's actually safe for everybody. And so I'm not sure quite, um, you know, we sort of went around into a place that's not, um, doesn't feel quite right. And right, and the and uh, probably the economics of it is is being able to invest time and money and energy in people to make sure that that to raise the floor of what people are able to do, you know, to, to that 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 if everybody's able to get or as many people are able to get a level of access of of what they need, um, that's that's I think would be a good investment in each individual person and in society as a whole to make sure that people can actually get the things that they need. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we sort of we we failed on a lot of um, on a lot of things. So I'm I'm curious, you know, that you know, considering the the ways in which we as a society have failed in in a variety of different ways here as well. Um, but there were probably some parenting suggestions and ideas and 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 elements that were really smart and made a lot of sense in 2019, and now all of a sudden, um, oh wait, maybe that wasn't. So right, or there were things that um, that were terrible ideas. I think about screen time, for example. But uh, in you know in 20, 2019, that now we're looking back that actually you know what if we can rethink the way that we do education, the way we do schools, that actually may be better. Are there are there pieces that that you think uh, the pandemic has changed the way that we've done schools and education and, and being parents? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the screens are probably the biggest thing that even the most extreme pe- people on screens like eventually had to give in. Um, you know, it's just like, and I think in some ways, you know, the the group that was most resistant to screens was also a group that kind of like many of them have to, you know, sort of like we're trying to be at home, homeschooling, two working parents, like professional jobs. And, you know, screens have become just a much bigger piece of many people's um, people's lives. And I think that's, you know, it's basically fine. Um, and I think we're going to like dial down the shame on that, uh, quite, quite a lot. Um, you know, I think there's an interesting question of whether this will cause, like, will there be some sort of more structural shift? I, you know, I think we will move to using more screens in school just in general. Um, you know, but like just partly because kids are going to be so much more facile with them. You know, my, like, like this morning, my five-year-old was like, oh, I got out of the Zoom. Oh, just never mind. I just minimized it. Like, here's how you fix that. Like, there's absolutely no way that my nine-year-old could have done that at five. And I was, you know, he's often like, ahead. I'm like, wait, 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 I did it. He's like, no, I fixed it. I fixed it. And, you know, but, 
Um, and so I think, you know, we're going to see, we're, we're, and we're going to be able to adopt some of those, you know, more individualized learning things, you know, include the, the, this app and the, that app. And I think we'll see, you know, we'll see, we'll see some of that. I don't think there's going to, I think that in the, particularly for the little kids, I'm not sure there's really going to be like, ultimately, it's not like we're, I don't think we're going to look back on this and be like, boy, screens are a great way to teach kids to read. Like the good way to teach kids to read is using books of phonics. Um, yep. And that's going to stay. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm also interested to see how much of this sort of like in, in the populations I talked to with a lot of this sort of like very hyper high achieving parents, people. Um, and I think there was this moment in the spring when everyone was like, had their like homeschool color coded homeschool schedule, you know, we're going to bake the bread and then we're going to, we're going to grow the wheat. There's going to be a victory garden. It's going to be this and then you know we're gonna like learn about the soil and all this kind of stuff and then it kind of like rapidly deteriorates just like screen time, screen time, screen time, screen time, Zoom school screen time. Um, and I think that there may be a little bit of a dial down of some of those expectations. And I and I think there's probably an element too of and I I mean I was thinking back to now God close to a year ago of okay I could this is hard but I can do it for two weeks versus oh, wow, are my kids ever going to be back? To, like, is this ever going to be back to any kind of normalcy? Yeah, and I think it's also, I mean, I, you know, I think we are going to, we're really going to appreciate the, the, like when, I will say every day that, you know, my kids, I'm lucky that my kids go to in-person school now. And I, every day I drop them off, I am happy. Like I am just every day, I grateful. Yeah, it's, and 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 I think that's that. I mean, that's that's a huge question too of being able to have resources of where you know where are that where are the resources that are able to to be there, and that's and um and 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 often probably also unintended consequences of not even recognizing of where you know where do we where do we put those resources, and sometimes it's there's a, a tremendous benefit, but sometimes there can be a, a detriment as well that we don't see until a couple of years down the road. So I know these are these are questions that you also the the books that you that you've written are also I, I'm you know very very personal because you you've written them sort of in in three stages right of, of, of from pregnancy to crib sheet to uh, to the family firm here and that's um, and and so are there are there pieces that you that you've now that you now look back on in some of your earlier books that that you reflect on a little bit differently from from uh from when you were writing them you said your kids are five and nine if i remember yeah, yeah it, so it's interesting i was reading i did it we did, i recorded the audiobook of expecting better which is the first book on pregnancy the other day um and uh and so i got a chance to you know i read it in a while so i got a chance to read it out loud um and you know it's funny I, my guess is many parents have this experience that you sort of look back on the things that you were worried about either, you know, before the kid was born or then when they were little, where now from the standpoint of having older kids, it's like, why did I even think about that for like five seconds? Like why, you know? And so, so, so I think that's the biggest reaction I have. It's just like, you know, I, not that I would have done it differently, but just like, boy, I worried about a lot of stuff that like was probably un, unnecessary um, to, to worry too much about. Um, but it is, you know, it's it's sort of, I mean, it's fun. I like I I like this age of my kids much better than I liked them as um as babies. Uh, because you know, they're they're people and we can kind of like talk about stuff and and so that's um so it's been it's been sort of I, don't know, I find it very I find this to be a very fun 
a very fun time. Well, and and you you know when we we spoke over the summer, um, helping rabbis getting ready for their high holiday sermons, there was something that you that you had brought up that was very helpful for a lot of the rabbis who were there. And I think it's very helpful for me. And I think for a lot of people as well, which is that you talk about rather than trying to make individual decisions of trying to have a, a framework to decide um, that, I, you know, it certainly happens I, I'm for my five-year-old and seven-year-old of like, okay, this, this works. Okay. This works for right now. It's not going to work. This decision is not going to work a year from now or even, you know, two years from now. So, so what are the what is this way when you think about the a framework to decide um, as opposed to being able to make each individual decision? When you talk with parents, what, what do you what do you say in this in this kind of situation? Yeah, so I sort of I, I mean I, I try to like I think it's very common for us as as people as parents to sort of like be approaching each individual decision as if we have to like a new create a system for for coming up with it and any each thing. And I think that you know some of what I say is like. Well, you know, you need kind of, you need to, to have a system for, for making these decisions. And I guess the other big, the other sort of big point I try to make is that we are, I think we're often tempted to try to make, to try to make the decision too quickly, which leads us to making, to spending more time than we could have. So I actually like outline, you know, both in the new book, but also then in, in some of my you know, earlier posts on COVID, and I'm saying, look, for a big decision, you want to start by thinking about like really like sitting down, having a meeting, talking about like, what's the question? What are the choices that we see? What are the realistic options? Spend some time getting some data, getting some evidence, thinking about, you know, well, if I'm trying to decide between this school and this school, like what are the, what are the test scores of the two schools? What are the other things? How far are they? What will the logistics actually look like? Like if this is, you know, this says two points higher on the test score, but it's 45 minutes away, like. What's that going to do to my day? Is that going to get in the way of this thing that I that I imagined? And you know, then kind of you doing all of that and then coming together again and saying, okay, here's all the facts. Like, let's make a decision. Um, and on the one hand, when I sort of describe these kind of systems, people are like, oh my god, that seems like so much work. Like, you, you I already had two you had two meetings in your thing, two meetings. And you know, but but the thing is, I think what happens for people is that they they instead of having two meetings, they have thirty five conversations. Where it's like one, it's like, wait, 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 uh, you know, I have to run, but I, let's just talk for two minutes about this thing. Like I heard this thing and I think we should try to, and then, and then like, well, I have to go. And it's like, okay, now I'm making, I'm making the dinner. I don't have any onions. Wait, I get it. But also I need to talk about the school thing again. Like let's, you know, revisit that. And you both with your partner and then with yourself, you're just like revisiting and revisiting and never sort of, and I think taking the time is all like taking the time, but not more than the time is kind of the, the key insight of some of this that like, you can actually make this both a better decision and in some ways an easier decision if you if you accept that it's going to take time and mm-hmm. give it that time rather than pretending that you can decide something important in five seconds and then actually taking, you know, a thousand five seconds, which you've wasted all your time. And and I think that's the other piece too, is being able to recognize and and accept the the loss or the or the consequence or the downside of whatever it is that you're that you're dealing with and being able to say like I am this is a cost I am willing to bear for this benefit here and being able to come at that more consciously as opposed to well I well I wish we didn't have to deal with this or that or the other, but being able to say yes this is this part is going to be hard and I'm willing to be able to own that 
Yeah. Yeah. I think this in, in the space of COVID, that piece of it has been really important in part because I think when we make other big decisions, one of the things we usually have is at the end, you feel like it's the right choice. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe it isn't always the right choice, but like in most sort of most of the kinds of decisions we make, we're kind of like coming out and saying, okay, I mean, like, I feel good about it. I'm excited about this school or this activity or whatever, you know, spouse or whatever it is. Like, I'm happy that we chose this. Um, and you know, we talk about stuff in COVID, there are a lot of decisions where like at the end you feel terrible, but like both options were terrible, you know? And so I, I talked about this a lot in the context of, of the holidays and sort of like, should you see your family? And that basically like the only two choices where you could be anxious because you chose to see them and you might get COVID or you could be sad. And that was it. There was no like secret option C where you felt happy. There was only anxious or sad. And once you recognize that, of course, like you're still going to feel one of those ways, but it, it enables, I think sometimes it enables people to be like, okay, I, maybe I made this decision correctly and it's okay that I don't feel good about it because I wasn't going to feel good about any of this. Right. There were only bad things. Uh, right. Right. And I think that's, I think that's, that's a, that's a huge thing of, uh, and, and being able to, to, to read, like, this is the reality of the world right now. And, 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 and it's okay to feel those kinds of things. Yeah, exactly. It's okay to acknowledge like the, um, yeah, just okay to acknowledge that like, like a lot of the things we choose to do, we don't, we're not going to feel great about because, you know, of COVID. And yeah, I mean, this is true. With, it's not just COVID, right? There's like a lot of, you know, decisions in life where there aren't really any good options. And I think that, that the failure to recognize that the only options are kind of not great makes people have a hard time making the right decision. And I think what's also very hard for, I know for, for me, and I think for a lot of people also, is that a lot of the, at least pre-COVID, a lot of the decisions were were sort of subconscious or easy decisions, right? You didn't even have to think so much about it. But with COVID, every single decision is a risk. Every single decision is, am I going to do this or not? And that's exhausting to be able to... Decision fatigue, right? It's like, should I go to... How many times a week should I go to the grocery store? The kind of thing where it's just like, I never would have spent that much time on this question of like, can I make can I make it, you know, two weeks without going to the grocery, you know, like this, it's just constant decision fatigue. And I think people are, hey, that is something people really struggle with. And, you know, so, so how can we, I mean, how can we be able to really think through of this kind of, of risk reward? Because I think, so, and I, 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 you mentioned this at the beginning also of the political pieces of this, that so much of, of the political conversation and and i think in a lot of ways religious language happens in this way too which is a very black and white yes no i'm right you're wrong and that ends up in my mind being very destructive because you can't actually get anything done anything with politics or economics or even in our family there's trade-offs there's conversations how can we move away from this very black and white element to be able to to Except that there's there is going to be loss. There are going to be trade offs. Uh, you know that's the you know parenting is not going to be easy, right? It's not always going to be. There are wonderful moments, but there are going to be really hard moments. How do we give ourselves that space to be able to accept that? I don't. I don't know. I mean, I think part of it is just acknowledging that that's acknowledging that fact, right? And sort of like 
you know, setting expectations with your, you know, with partners or with just that, like, we are not going to, yeah, that like not everything will be, will be easy or obvious. And that a lot of the choices will be, um, you know, will be, will be hard. And I think that, you know, for me, I think for a lot of people, the sort of the first year of parenting has a lot of these features of like you kind of used to having more time and space and for decisions being easier because there was no baby and so it's just like which where should we have brunch you know and then all of a sudden there's sort of something you don't know anything about that you both care a tremendous amount about and both feel very strongly that you know what to do and also it's not always the same and then kind of like the I think a lot of people are, that conflict is so unexpected that it's, it's kind of gets it, you, you like, you don't know how to handle it because you, you have never had that kind of conflict with, with a partner before. Um, and I, I think, you know, people often say the first year, like first year marriage is hard, but then the first year of having a baby. And I think we definitely see like marital happiness, partnership happiness go down in the first year, especially with the first kid. And I think that is coming from kind of a, a un, unfortunate set of expectations that somehow the decisions will be easy or obvious. Um, and that, that maybe if we just sort of set the expectations at the beginning, they're like, hey, there are gonna be a lot of things where we don't agree where the answer is not is not so clear, you know, that expectation setting might help. But I think we see that because many people like, like the, the second kid, you kind of realize at least you're expecting it, and also you realize it's whatever you Right. It's all that's right. And, and that's oh, uh, there's a Total, yeah. That you know, that the second child just sort of eats everything off the dirt. <laughs> That's, uh... No, like my first kid, I had all the like the the jars of the pureed food, and my second kid, I was like, no way, that's so much work. <laughs> like, like he's just gonna eat what we what we eat if he doesn't like it. I guess he'll just have milk. And well, and and, and so what someone said is that you know, you want to have what someone said, the optimal amount of dirt in your house because you could spend hours making your house spotless but then you're not actually doing anything fun and that's and a so little bit of dirt. right a little bit of dirt right just the, just the right amount of dirt in this kind of way um and and i think what's what's also what's been hard i think for a lot of parents probably for 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 covid and for schools also which is that there's there for better and for for worse i think there's a lot more input and a lot more stakeholders about the decision making i think if, 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 you know we didn't always have a window into what was happening in the schools in this kind of way um or, and and so parents sometimes feeling very strongly but not necessarily always having the, the knowledge with the other um with the with the superintendent or the teachers and and it can be very challenging also of how do you have this as a partnership with the school as opposed to being in conflict. Yeah. And I think that, you know, schools have, um, I think we've seen like an, it, the enormously important role of trust uh, across places. Um, and, you know, even uh, across, you know, I've talked to, there are obviously our school districts, like we're sort of seeing stuff in Chicago at the moment where basically the like, there's just no trust between the, the teachers and the school and between the parents and the, and the parents and the school. Nobody trusts anybody. And it's really, really difficult to make progress in that kind of environment. And then, you know, you talk to, I've had conversations with superintendents in, you know, in places where they're told me, you know, like my, like, you know, my teachers are like, if they, if they're, even if they have COVID, they're teaching on, 
like, which is a total, like, it's sort of, and when I express that, people, it's like, yeah, like, I cannot imagine that that's happening. You know, I had a superintendent tell me, like, yeah, if the teachers are feeling good, if they're not, like, super sick, then they just keep their classes on Zoom even if they have COVID, which is, like, just would never, kind of not, definitely not part of the, like, Chicago Teachers Union negotiation package. Um, but, you know, I think that, and, but it's really reflecting sort of differences in, in trust. And I think it's part of the reason that some private schools have had an easier time opening um, because there's more trust in the community. People are more comfortable with, you know, trusting that what other people are doing outside of school is not bad. Um, and I think that's been, um, you know, I think that that kind of erosion of trust has been a real issue in a lot of dimensions in schools. And, and probably also feeling valued, right? Not just uh, valued emotionally and, and valued financially of being able to say, right, that they're what what they are doing is something that society has decided is is worth. A, I mean, that's why I think like vaccination, you know, vaccination for teachers are such an obvious win because, you know, on the one hand, it's not a super high risk group. On the other hand, I think that, you know, making clear how much being an in-person teacher is valued and then people are afraid and you know this is something that can kind of address that I think that's like very important. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the 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 trust allows I think trust is also very much of an economic engine also that you could that you know, that's you know so much of the economy is you know being able to to trust that if I spend money this thing's going to come here that without without trust the economy grinds to a halt it's the whole thing on the idea that like I give you a piece of paper and you can give that to somebody else and get stuff for it and if you think about it, it's just a piece of paper so right. basically our entire economic system is built on the idea that like this, this piece of, we trust that somebody's going to do something with the paper right Right. And I think that's, and, and, and that's, you know, and, and, and that's why I love it that in, in Judaism, the word, uh, trust of emunah, um, is also related to the word of emet, which means, which means truth. So that, you know, that you can know that there's an element of what I'm saying is, is truthful. And that also, I think of, of coming, coming at these kinds of questions with, um, judging someone in the pan of merit, that they're coming at it with good intentions. And I think that's a, that's, very important as you know, as parents, I think as partners in any kind of way, of we're we're trusting that you're the decision that you're making, you're doing the best that you can with the information that you have. Right. Yeah, and I think that's. I mean, that is in some ways the sort of core underpinning and trust is that we is that we don't always agree, but we think that we have like that we are aiming in the same direction. Yeah. Um, and I think you know that's a big. Um, I mean, I think that's a big thing for for kind of parenting, particularly co co parenting, uh, to sort of like start to establish that we are, you know, what is the direction we're headed in? What are we trying to achieve? You know, are we, what is the life we're trying to build? What are the values we're trying to build? Thank you for listening to this episode of Sacred Science, and we hope you enjoyed our conversation with Professor Emily Oster. You can find her on Twitter at Prof. Emily Oster. Our guest on our next episode will be Michael Shermer, editor of Skeptic Magazine and author of multiple books on the interplay between reason and belief. I've been your host, Rabbi Jeff Middleman. Sacred Science is a production of Sinai and Synapses and is part of the Judaism Unbound Network. Sacred Science is produced by Jeff Middleman and edited by Rachel Pincus and Zach Jackson. And to find all of our previous episodes and guests, you can find us at sinaiandsynapses.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're interested in more conversations about religion and science, including articles, blog posts, and upcoming events, you can visit Sinai and Synapses' website or follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Sinai and Synapses 
on Twitter, at Sinai Synapses, or me, at Rabbi Middleman. You can also find out more about Judaism Unbound and its offerings at JudaismUnbound.org. Thanks for joining us. We hope to see you again soon. And Kol Tuv, all good things.